And hello, everyone. Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, if uh, a rattlesnake wandered into this radio studio right now, what would you do? I'd say, hey, Robert, there's a rattlesnake over here in the corner. And? And to hear the answer, you're just going to have to stay tuned to my interview with the snake savant, Harry Green. Harry is a herpetologist, if you want to use the fancy term, an expert on reptiles and amphibians. He's a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University and a former curator of the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology at UC Berkeley. He's well known for his 1997 book, Snakes, the Evolution of Mystery in Nature. And now he has a new book out. It's a memoir called Tracks and Shadows, Field Biology is Art. It mixes natural history and personal history. And Harry says he wrote it, uh, at least in part, to explain some things about himself to his friends and family. Quite a few things happened to me in my young adult stages of my life that I never talked much about to anybody. And uh, I got them out in the open with this book. Things like his violent youth. Though, don't get me wrong, it wasn't Harry doing the violence. I had, by the time I was 30, and even by the time I was 21 or 22, an unusual amount of exposure to death and violence. I don't think it's normal for a 20-year-old to be hauling a headless teenager out of the back of a car. I don't think it's normal for a 21-year-old to have a child die in his arms. That was when he was working for a funeral home in Texas when he was in college. He drove a vehicle that doubled as both an ambulance and a hearse. When we were doing a funeral, we took the red light off, turned these things in the back of it so a casket would roll in and out. When we weren't doing that, we flipped everything, and now it worked as an ambulance. He even lived in the mortuary for a time. He slept just across from the embalming room, if you can imagine that. And uh, it wasn't just strangers dying all around him. There was a college mentor who was killed along with his family by a deranged son. There were other friends and relatives who lost their lives through heart attacks and car crashes. And then there was a woman he'd been in love with. We really never sort of broke up. We sort of drifted apart. We each eventually married somebody else. And uh, right after I started into grad school, she was murdered by her husband. So what does all this death and tragedy have to do with Harry's chosen specialty, studying snakes? Because he says there is a connection there, though it took him a while to figure it out. Early on, in my early 30s, when I was a young assistant professor, I didn't really even ask myself why rattlesnakes. I just found them fascinating, and I was drawn to them. Over the years, it became clearer to me that there there must be an explanation for working with venomous snakes, with dangerous snakes. And as I finished writing Tracks and Shadows, it became more and more clear to me that this is all sort of about mortality and and what's our place and and does you know what's the place of death in everybody's lives. So, getting to the big question then. Having witnessed death, having felt it, heading out into nature, watching snakes do their thing, which mm-hmm. includes killing other animals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> quite a bit. And, and and you've killed them too. You know? I have. How many how many things have you killed in your life? Uh, I mean, deliberately. Well, the answer might shock you. Uh, thousands, probably. Uh, so I I'm a biologist, and part of what I do is study amphibians and reptiles. And one of the ways we study amphibians and reptiles is to collect them as museum specimens and then use those museum specimens to document where they live, what they're built like, what they eat, and so forth. And so I don't know the exact number, but since I collected my first specimen as a 15-year-old, which was a, a, a glass lizard that had been run over by a car, that was Harry W. Green number one. I think I've probably put at least 2,500 specimens in museums in various parts of the world that I deliberately preserved, prepared as museum specimens, wrote tags on and put there. So that's part of the answer. If we're talking about relatively smallish animals like amphibians and reptiles, somewhere between two and 3,000. Well, maybe this is another way of approaching those big questions then. Um, you're a herpetologist, uh, a herper. Mm-hmm. You love reptiles. Right. And you've killed couple thousand of them. That's right. Okay, square that for me. Yeah, it is It is a disturbing <laughs> proposition, isn't it? Um, yeah. I square it in a couple of ways. Um, the biggest way is that I'm quite confident that every one of those things I killed and preserve has a role in science. And I'm quite confident that sooner or later, every one of those specimens will play a role in preserving biodiversity and helping people appreciate biodiversity and so forth. So I think there's a really kind of widespread uh, 
not thought out presumption that this knowledge is just out there for us. It's almost, I used to make a joke that people think there's a vending machine for field guides. You know, oh, we need a field guide to mushrooms. Just put your money in this thing, punch the button, out comes a field guide to mushrooms. The, the truth is much more complicated than that. that it, and let's just assume you want your field guide to be right, okay? If you don't care if it's sloppy, well, it'll be a lot easier. But if you want your field guide to be accurate, then we have to have people studying things in nature, recording these things, and in some cases, vouchering the information they record with a with a specimen. Now, we do a lot less collecting than we used to as field biologists. Now we have digital imagery and so on and so forth. I'm confident that the total number of animals collected for science will go steadily down. Mm. Well, you know, one reason I'm asking that is because you obviously, uh, from reading your book, it's obvious that you you've had a lot of second thoughts about things you've done. One is what you call pinning snakes. Right. And what what is pinning snakes? So pinning snakes is the way I learned to catch venomous snakes. So the really old way was a, with a fork stick, and you still heard people talk about that. In fact, I, I don't know anybody that's used a fork stick in my lifetime. The problem with fork sticks is because if they're too small, you really pinch the snake. If they're too big, the snake crawls between them. But you always heard about fork sticks. In fact, the usual snake stick is shaped either like just a right angle or like a shepherd's crook. Most of us actually prefer one that's shaped like a shepherd's crook. And you can use it to just lift the snake on the hook, which is actually what we now do almost exclusively. But what I learned to do as a teenager was to use the flat end of the shepherd's crook, mash the snake's head down against the ground so that you could more or less safely then pick it up in your fingers. That's what pinning is. And I learned that's what I was taught as a teenager. I've pinned lots of pit vipers, a fair number of coral snakes, and I now think it's a completely unnecessary and really hard thing to do to a snake, and it increases your chances of getting hurt yourself. Mm. So I'm really against it. Mm. And, you know, if I got the sense of it right uh, in your book, you talk about it as, like, not only backwards in those respects, but also like a, a macho act, like, you know, yeah. taking control. Yeah, absolutely. And you use the word trophyism at one point for <laughs> capturing snakes, too. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not really proud of the fact I did it a lot. I actually would just as soon not have to admit that I did it. But I think if I'm going to... If I'm going to campaign for people not doing this anymore, then I need to own up to the fact that I did it. Mm. And if I'm really truthful about that, I will admit that I enjoyed the fact that when I was holding a seven-foot Bushmaster in my hands, there was a crowd of people around me admiring me, thinking that I was unusually brave and skillful. And some of those people were young women. <laughs> I mean, let's just be let's just be honest about that, you know. And I think – what what only became clear to me much later is not only is this really hard on the snakes, not only is it risky for me, not only is it something I don't have to do. Every single thing I want to do with venomous snakes, teaching, research, outreach, I can do without ever doing that. But on top of all that, it's not actually all that dangerous. So uh, I never got bit pinning venomous. Well, I did actually, but I was 17 and it never happened again. So that's extremely low risk if you're careful and know what you're doing. Mm. And that means that the impression of macho, bravado, skill, mm. et cetera, is kind of a lie. And and to me, that's like the, that's like the final blow. If, if you face up to the fact that it's not even a true measure of, of sort of guts, you know, guts and grit or whatever. On the other hand, those Pentecostals, now that – that's definitely dangerous, right? That's definitely dangerous. <laughs> now, they're, what they're doing is dangerous, and I wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 What I said in my book is, you know, what's really dangerous is getting on a bull. So <laughs> less than 40% of bull riders make it to the eight-second bell. To me, bull riding is probably about as pure machismo as you can imagine. And so if you're thinking about pinning a rattlesnake, just go get on a bull. Just go get into the rodeo. That's right. You were a crappy student when young. I was. <laughs> It's true. And now you have a title that I can't quite memorize. I'm going to have to read it here. You are the Stephen Weiss Presidential Fellow and Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Cornell University. That's true. How did you go from crap student to uh, named chair yeah. at, uh, at Cornell? It's a long, torturous <laughs> path. It really goes way back because I was a fine student as in elementary school and high school. I wasn't a off-the-chart student, but I made mostly A's and nobody complained and so forth. During that time, I also was, already, was always reading and I had the great fortune to meet a couple of university biologists while I was in high school and to apprentice with one of them. 
So the time I graduated from high school, I'd already published three scientific papers, and I liked doing that. I just didn't have any social life. So then when I went off to college, I sort of discovered girls, and I discovered a social life. And I'd been this very nerdy uh, kid who wasn't part of, you know, I wasn't an athlete and so forth. And now all of a sudden I had a social life. And so I had such a good social life that by the end of my junior year in college, my cumulative GPA was 1.89, which is a D plus. I had a D plus average after three years of college. At some point you turned it around though. Yes. And so what happened was I, I always had thought ever, ever since being a teenager that I would go to grad school, get a PhD and become a professor. And I, I guess about the end of my third year in college as I was flunking out and I actually flunked out of two schools in quick succession, I realized my dream was going to disappear. It really would become impossible. And so I wrote my parents, uh, begged them to let me come back home and live at home, and promised to give it one more try. I, I had gotten in debt, unbeknownst to them, and so I also owed a lot of money. And so uh, I already had this ambulance driving experience. I moved back to Fort Worth. I got a job where I worked four 24-hour shifts a week. I made straight A's for a year and a half, and I got drafted. Mm. Okay, so so now I still only have like a 2.89 GPA. I'm in the Army for three years. I get out, and a professor at a nearby then branch campus, the University of Texas, that was just starting their master's program, he managed to force them virtually by dint of personality to admit me on probation. So that's how close I came to, to not making it through the eye of this needle I'd created for myself. Thanks to him, I got in on probation. By then, I was, I'd figured things out. I, I loved graduate school. Based on getting a master's degree, I got into a Ph.D. program. Everything was good from then. Do you run into students now, though, who remind you of you? I do. And I, you know, I try to be especially sympathetic and, and helpful to them. And it's harder now to get through that eye of that needle than it is for me. It was hard for me and it's harder for them. But I try to watch for people like that and help them course correct. You manage to do it? Sometimes I do. Must feel, I, I, must I can feel point good, to huh? people who are actually uh, academics themselves now who I knew as sort of B-minus students at Berkeley 10, 15, 20 years ago. Does that tend to crop up in people attracted to, you know, nature and wilderness? I mean, academia and the wild, those sound like the opposite kinds of environments, right? Right. You love the wild. It might be kind of hard to sit and write a Ph.D. dissertation for two years, you know, or something like that, or to be in a laboratory or. Right. So the trick, though, is if you love the wild and being outdoors and being with organisms and especially being engaged with organisms is what sort of really you know, floats your, whatever it is, it floats. Uh, if, if that's your thing, how are you going to, how are you going to make a living at that? And there are, there are some options, but there aren't limitless options. And one of the options historically is to get into biology as a, as an academic profession. And, and I saw that. So when I was 13 years old, by accident, I met a professor at the University of Oklahoma who was sort of the grand old man of lizard behavior. And I came home that night and I told my mom and dad, I'm going to, I'm going to be a professor. They get to keep lizards. <laughs> Turned out to be a little more complicated than that, but I have gotten to keep lizards. Was was the you, the, the Harry Green, who just loved being outdoors, who liked seeing animals in their world, mm -hmm. uh, what was it like for you when, for instance, you became the curator of the Museum of uh, Vertebrate Zoology at UC Berkeley? I'm picturing a place, you know, where you have your glass cases, you have your jars of formaldehyde, you have a lot of desiccated specimens and taxidermy, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. indoor kind of environment. Right. Things taken out of their world. You know, was that a tension for you? Not in the slightest. And it's because of the way that university museum in particular was founded. Um, there are actually others at other institutions like Michigan and Harvard and so forth. But the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology was founded in 1909 with the explicit mission of understanding the biota of California and Western North America. And the guy who was the founding director, Joseph Grinnell, uh, saw specimens as like the core of research on organisms and nature. He started a field, a field note method that is still sort of, it's like the industry standard for how to take field notes. And so at the MVZ, you are expected as a student or faculty member to keep your field notes approximately in this Grinnellian style it's part of your job is to not only put these specimens in the museum, but to provide all this context in terms of what was the weather like, what was their habitat, how they behaved before you collect them, so on and mm -hmm. so forth. So there was no divorcing this from nature. It was very much embedded in hmm. nature. Hmm. 
Let's talk about snakes, um, and especially the the species I think you know best, right? The mm-hmm. uh, black-tailed rattlesnake. That's certainly one I've studied more than anything else. What is the longest you've just sat and watched a snake? Nonstop. Nonstop. Yeah. It would have to be probably eight or ten hours, something like that. I watched some blacktails that long, and I watched a bushmaster that that long once. And then you've tracked them for longer than that. Much longer than that. Using years. Years. Single yeah. individual snakes. We, my, my record, our record, because I did a lot of this in collaboration with a Tucson physician who sort of did it as a hobby to work with me. And, and his did, name was? His name was David Hardy. He's in your book, too. He's in my book. And uh, he did all the surgeries. He was also an expert on snake bite treatment, which would have come in handy if we'd ever had an accident, which we didn't. Um, we watched one female, super, super female 21. We had 569 encounters with her over a course of 12 years. She's your favorite snake. She's my favorite snake <laughs> of my life. I got to hear about her. First of all, why is she super female? Because, uh, well, we had 50 snakes in this study. It was about a 15-year field study. And over the course of the 15 years, we put re- little radio transmitters. They're about the size of a lipstick container in 50 snakes. You implanted them. We implanted them surgically. So this was done very uh, non-traumatically. We, we were actually at pains to not disturb these animals. So... We were just the opposite of pinning them. We would very gently capture them with, by lifting them into a bucket. We'd take them to a house about three miles away. I would gently coax the snake into a plexiglass tube part way, and then we would introduce the vapor anesthetic, same thing used on people, into the other end of the tube. About 10, 12 minutes, they're in deep surgical anesthesia. Make a little incision, put the radio in, stitch them up, let them recover from the anesthetic, and back they go in the wild. Wow, so they just go right back out with the right lipstick size transmitter in them. Yep. And yep. you guys could follow them all over the place. We could locate them from up to almost a mile away, depending on conditions. And so we would locate the snakes every day, make observations of them. Sometimes a battery would fail. Sometimes a snake would die or be killed by someone. So for various reasons, the amount of time we studied individuals varied from sometimes only a few weeks to several years. And Super Female 21 was our, our champion. We called her Super Female 21 because she was the best hunter of all 50 snakes, as judged by how many times did we see a big food lump. She uh, was the best mom. She gave birth to four litters in 12 years of big, fat babies that she took very good care of. Uh, stop right there. Yes. What does a mother snake do for her babies? Well, the first thing she does is not abandon them. So the typical thing in reptiles is to lay your eggs or give birth to your babies and just get get going. And in fact, you could forgive her for that because at the time she gives birth, super female 21, she hasn't eaten in almost a year. So she's gone almost a year from our last meal over winter through spring and summer gestation and given birth. She is truly hungry, and yet she puts off hunting for another 10, 12 days while she remains with these babies while they go through a very delicate period of their first skin shedding. She becomes more defensive during that period, so she's clearly protecting them. Um, they're doing a lot of tongue flicking, so they're probably learning each other's identities, which would keep them from breeding with their sisters and so forth in mm. the future. And uh, then when they shed their skin, she watches them shed their skin. And then the next day, all the babies have dispersed, and we find her 40 yards away at a wood rat nest trying to get a meal. Did you know that snakes were so maternal before you started this study? We did not. Um, and... After Super Female 21 let us discover this, we subsequently documented in lots of other female blacktails. We documented it in other species. And we actually found anecdotes in the published natural history literature of other, other species of pit vipers staying with their babies. And it had always been discounted as a, as a coincidence. Oh, yeah, I just found one and she's just had birth. Until we looked at it in detail, and then we could sort of retrospectively evaluate all this. It was very clear that pit vipers as a group are great moms. Hmm. Seems like she deserves a better name, though. Super Than super female? <laughs> 21. Well, that was her number. <laughs> I so know. They, they all had numbers. <laughs> and we did nickname some others. There was a male name that we nicknamed Kevin Costner. <laughs> he was the stud of the canyon. So there there were names, but they all had numbers as well. But that I guess... You know, that's the kind of thing you could only learn if you really dedicated yourself over a long period of time, right? Yep, that's right. Uh, and that's something I've always thought distinguished field biologists. Mm. You know, the, the the just the long, dedicated observation yes. of animals. And how that exposes a side of them that you wouldn't have found in the textbooks that were written by guys who hung out 
you know, maybe in the lab all the time. Mm-hmm. Am well, I right I, about that? Or? Yeah, you are. And I think that, that uh, you know, I'm not judging one type of scientist as being better than the other. It takes different sorts of proclivities and so forth. I could never sit at a bench with a pipette. And I'm not even <laughs> a very good experimentalist, period. I, I'm not a very analytic person. I'm more of a synthetic, integrative person. I, I can go, I can watch an animal in the wild for hours without getting bored. And I could get bored very quickly trying to figure out experimental design and replicate samples of something and so forth. So clearly science needs kind of both sorts of approaches. And I'm just lucky that I've been able to have a career where I could play on my own strengths. Well, you've been able to cover a lot of ground. Like like we said, you were the curator of a museum, a major museum. Uh, You obviously did... A lot of serious theoretical work, right, in your Ph.D. dissertation. Mm -hmm. Um, But is there a little bit of a tension between those different types of of biology? Is there there a status system where theoreticians and and laboratory experimentalist types have looked down on you dirt-under-the-fingernails collector types? Yes. (laughs) That's the short answer. I think think there's a more nuanced answer, too, uh, in that we really need all these parts. But to just do the natural history, to just do the observational stuff is not very glamorous, and there's not much financial support for it. So, for example, you are not it's, – it's very hard to get money from the National Science Foundation, period, because there's a shortage of funds. So let's just get that clear at the start. There's not enough money at NSF to fund all the good proposals, not even remotely. In that sort of situation especially – if I were to write a proposal that said, uh, you know, just not much is known about rattlesnakes, and I'm sure that if I go and learn a lot of cool things about them, <laughs> there will be stuff in there that's important for biomedicine, for community ecology theory, for uh, evolutionary theory, and so forth, that would not get funded. So you cannot get funded by NSF on the promise that something you see in nature will be interesting to somebody. Now, I think I could demonstrate by my own career that, in fact, Things I've seen in nature have proved interesting to some, to various people, right? But you can't get funding for that. So, uh, yes, there is that sort of hierarchy of of enthusiasm, if you want to call it that. Funding is very poor for natural history per se. I just have been incredibly lucky uh, that for 20 years I was at the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, which had an endowment that provided modest funds for field research. My research doesn't cost very much. And so with modest funding, I could get a lot done. And... I wasn't only interested in the organisms. I was also interested in broader issues in community ecology and evolutionary theory. And so I was always watching for ways to make my natural history observations and studies relevant to broader issues. Mm. I think that that's an important part of it. One of the virtues of, you know, taking animals or biological systems out of their environment and putting them in a very precisely controlled Mm -hmm. place in the lab is that you get to isolate one little thing, control the experiment, and you can drill down and and, and learn things that you maybe couldn't learn in the vast, complex real world. Uh, Exactly. On the other hand, as you point out, Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, co-discoverers of evolution by natural selection, Mm -hmm. got their insights out there in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Traveling around. Totally. Looking at stuff. Totally. They might not have ever come up with it if they'd sat at home reading books, you know, looking at museum specimens. Maybe. Maybe. And on the other hand, going out there, it's complicated out there. It's very complicated. A guy like me, I wander out there and, I mean, I love nature. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I bet you and I walking out together, you'd see a million things and I'd miss them all. Right. You know? Although I'd probably only mainly see things about snakes. So, so just two weeks ago, I was in the Chiricahua Mountains where I did the blacktail field study. But for the first time, I was with a colleague who's a plant ecologist. And we went to places that I've been over and over and over, spent hundreds of hours hiking through. And he was telling me things about Doug fir and Ponderosa pine distribution in that mountain range that I never saw, you know. Mm. So it's one of those ch- chance favors the prepared mind, that kind of thing, too. But each of you guys knows how to look at something, really right. look at it. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me, like, when did you get that kind of vision? How long did it take to to be able to go into an environment, a landscape, and, and really read it the way you can, at least on snake level? You know, I don't know a precise answer. I mean, I, I became interested in snakes when I was seven years old. I I started 
publishing about snakes when I was 15 or 16. And of course, the whole time I was reading, and I'm still reading, if I could, I would read everything published on snakes, and it's no longer possible. But I think you're always sort of bringing in new information and sort of measuring what you know against it and then revising your outlook. And uh, and there is this thing that that you get accustomed to a particular place. So people talk about this with, with indigenous people as well and their ability to just walk through an environment and, and spot things. And and certainly I can spot things better than some can. And it's, it's about familiarity and curiosity, things mm. like that. Mm. I want to ask you a couple of basic snake questions. Mm-hmm. First of all, a snake is really just a long lizard lacking legs, right? That's right. Their ancestors had legs. They did. They Some snakes still have legs. Oh, yeah? Yes. So actually, if you just can find a live ball python or boa constrictor or something like that, and you look right next to its vent, especially if it's male, you'll you'll see these a little claw on either side, and that's a vestigial hind limb. Wow. And if you x-rayed it, you would find vestigial pelvic elements in there. So no living snake still has any pectoral girdle let alone forelimbs, but but some living snakes still have a, a, an internal pelvic girdle and even sometimes little external vestiges of limbs. They're still getting rid of them in a way. They're still getting rid of them in a way. Why, though, uh, from an adaptation standpoint, would you want to get rid of your legs? Yeah, so uh, there's several advantages that come from leglessness, and we sort of have some guesses to, as to which of these advantages were probably primary. Uh, one thing to say, though, is that it, it's clear, you know, it turns out that among the rest of lizards, just among living lizards, there are about 100 different independent examples of limb reduction and loss. So over and over again, especially in certain groups like skinks, for example, and the alligator lizards, for example, there's this tendency to reduce your limbs and even lose them. And it always happens in a almost always happens in a very particular pattern. The front limbs get smaller and smaller, and then the hind limbs get smaller and smaller, and at the same time, body's getting more and more and more elongate. So there are no limbless lizards that are short and squat. Okay, <laughs> so clearly, body elongation yeah. actually precedes limb loss. Uh. And body elongation has some big advantages. For one thing, you can go into a smaller crevice if you're not as big around, Okay. It turns out that how much energy is required to penetrate a substrate, like a, to burrow into dirt, is proportional to your cross-sectional area. So the you can just imagine having to hammer sure. in a broomstick or hammer in a nail. You know? Exactly, yeah. So uh, a skinnier organism requires less energy to burrow. Uh-huh. So there's you can get in places you couldn't otherwise. You can burrow more efficiently. turns out you can crawl over substrates that you would sink in if you're long and skinny. So imagine a squirrel and a snake of the same weight. And think about which one do you think could crawl across foliage without falling through. It would be the snake, right? So there are all these advantages to being body elongate. And at some point, if you're really elongate, your limbs are kind of in the way. And so those seems to be the factors that, that led to limb loss and body elongation in snakes. And how do they get around so well without legs? Yeah, so there, there are several different locomotor modes, modes, but the main one is this this what's called lateral undulation, where these waves are passed from fore to aft, and as they pass, the forces induced by those waves push against the substrate on each side, and snakes have incredibly complex neuromuscular control, obviously. That's why they can move with such fluidity and such complex uh, changes in their environment. And Basically, that's what happens. These waves pass backwards, and they push against the substrate, and the snake goes forward. And, and, And how do they get a foothold without a foot? Without a foot. Well, it's their scales and their body. So if you put a snake on a completely frictionless surface, it doesn't go anywhere. It just makes those movements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They climb trees, some of them. They climb trees really well. Some of them climb trees with astonishing speed. See, I can't even, yeah. I can't grasp that. Yeah. Well, the ones that climb trees really fast are actually just sort of laterally undulating in a vertical framework. So there are big tropical snakes like the tiger rat snake that I've seen just zoom up a big tree. But they're essentially just pointing themselves in a different direction. A different way is something called concertina where, and this is a very slow means of climbing, where a boa, for example, or a thick-bodied viper essentially just sort of wraps the lower part of its body against the tree trunk and then extends the front part. Mm. And the front part gets up there, sticks out, wraps around the tree, brings up the back part. And that's why it's called concertina, because there's this concertina-like progression in a particular 
direction. Yeah, that I can fathom. That mm-hmm. method I can fathom. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit like how I would climb a rope. Exactly. But uh, exactly. the other method, yeah. as you say, just undulating up the side of a tree. It's very difficult for us to grasp. Yeah. I mean, we could lie on the floor and, and, and you know, I mean, you could. If you got on the floor here, you could you could fold your arms and legs. And if I told you you have to get out that door, you could squirm your way across the carpet, right, <laughs> and make your way out the door. But it wouldn't be very graceful. No. But, of course, you've still got a sternum, and you're not built like a snake, and you're not very well prepared for it. Roughly half snake species are uh, venomous. Well, it depends a lot on how you define venomous. But, uh, yeah, that's a good guess, maybe even more than half. And that's a way higher proportion than, say, lizards. Yes, although we need to remember that really snakes are just a sort of type of limbless lizard. Well, but, then I'll say other lizards. Yes. Uh-huh. Why, along with the loss of legs and the elongation and becoming a snake, yeah. becoming this specialized lizard, did being venomous become more common? That's a great question, and I'll tell you that that actually has not been that precisely framed in the literature. It's a, it's a great question to raise. And I think the reason is before we get venoms in snakes, we get eating big meals. So, you know, the average lizard is going to eat probably many times a day, certainly many times a week. Each meal is going to be quite small. Often it's only going to take a few seconds to catch and process it. That means that the risk associated with each of those feeding bouts is very small. I mean, there's only a few seconds when it's not attending to whether there's a red tail flying over or something. It's going to have to do it many times. So there is that small risk many times, sometimes many times a day, certainly many times in a growing season. Probably even a big meal for most lizards weighs less than 1% of their body mass. For snakes, even for snakes that are not especially specialized for big meals, average meals are probably 5 to 20% of their body mass. So we're already up to a size that we find a little hard to imagine. I mean, imagine if one meal for me was 20% of my body mass, that would be 30 pounds or so? That would be a 30, 35-pound meal at yeah. once. Now, when we we have snakes that, that not uncommonly eat things weighing their own body mass, and even up to the maximum sizes we know of around 150 to 160% of body mass. <laughs> so now we're talking about me eating a meal weighing perhaps 270 pounds at once. Uh, we a, a really crude estimate would be maybe a snake needs to eat three or four times its own body mass per year pay its grocery bills. So now look at look at how different the energetics of foraging are for a snake compared to a hummingbird or a shrew. A snake might get by with only eating three or four meals a year. That means only three or four times a year it has to expose itself to predation by crawling around, by being preoccupied with eating and so forth. It's a vastly different way of making a living. A problem is at some point you can subdue and ingest a meal that's so big it might rot before you digest it. And the other thing is the bigger the meal, the more likely it might hurt you in the case of you subduing it. So there's some up, that's just a matter of, you know, you and I could square off and Mm. part of why one of us might win would be who weighs more. Mm. Um, And so I think those two things, being able to subdue big prey and being able to digest big prey, especially in colder climates and so forth, that puts a real premium on solving that problem. And powerful venoms and front fangs with which you can you know, like just driving two hypodermic needles into something and disengaging right away, that's a big deal for venomous snakes. And it helps with digestion, too? It helps with digestion, too. I mean, basically, a viper uh, eating a rabbit, for example. And and so here's female 21. She She's about, when female 21 would be pregnant, the year she'd be pregnant, she Correction, might Correction, super female. Super female, thank you. <laughs> super female 21, the year she was pregnant, she might weigh a pound, a little more than a pound. And she would be about three feet long or slightly under. She had no trouble whatsoever eating cottontails. So, and we actually saw her once strike a cottontail. The cottontail bounded away over a very irregular path for 90 yards. It took her four hours, and she followed the exact irregular path of that rabbit, tongue flicking. It took her four hours to find the rabbit, and then she ate it. Well, what's happened is she's been in an ambush situation probably very strategically. She's probably picked a rabbit runway based on rabbit odors. She set herself up perpendicular to it. She might sit there for hours or even days, and she might eventually decide to give up. In this case, she didn't. The rabbit comes by. She strikes for just a very fraction of a second. She's in contact with this potentially deadly adversary. She lets go. The rabbit bounds off. The rabbit is 
is, is rapidly being killed, but it's also with its own heartbeats circulating all these digestive enzymes throughout its tissues. Oh. Okay, the rabbit is perfusing itself in the language of, of embalming, for example. It's perfusing itself with all these digestive enzymes, and then it keels over. Four hours later, when she gets there, that rabbit is already underway digesting from the inside out. So it's a, a fantastic way of making a living. You're reminding me of another snake story that I learned from reading your book. This is one that you and I uh, talked about a little bit in a short interview we did on a prior show. But I, I, I like it so much, I'm going to bring it back up. This is male 41. Oh, yeah. Another black-tailed rattlesnake. That's right. right. And uh, first of all, like the super female you were just describing, he too staked out a runway. That's this right. This is a chipmunk runway. That's right. He figured out with his chemosensory organs, you know, flicking his tongue. The tongue isn't chemosensory itself. It delivers the material to the chemosensory organs inside the snake. That's right? exactly right. So they flick the tongue. Oh, we might as well insert something here. This is something I learned from your book. The reason for the fork is because you get right and left readings, and That's that right. helps you sort of get stereoscopic olfaction, right? That's right. Like having two eyes and being able to locate things. Snakes are extremely space. good at, at following the direction of a trail that's going to lead to something. So they might approach the trail perpendicularly. If they went the wrong way, they could waste a lot of time crawling where the rabbit had been. But they can actually determine by assessing strength of the odor in either direction with these two different tines of their tongue that the rabbit went that way. So back to male 41, he uh, sussed out the runway using his tongue, mm -hmm. uh, and he stakes it out. Yep. And then he realizes there's something obstructing his view. There's a problem. That's right. <laughs> so this is a big male, male 41. He probably was over four feet long. He probably weighed close to two pounds. So he's a big animal, beautiful big yellow snake. Um, and he he either hasn't perceived or, or he's not bothered by us. But we're standing the, – the, David Hardy and I are standing maybe 20 feet away in this little ravine, and we see him crawling towards us, and he crawls down into a flat area of cobbles and, and dry leaves, and he, f he just suddenly stops, and he starts intensely tongue-flicking this area that's about two square yards. And I've got a watch that I'm running, a stopwatch, and so I'm writing notes, watching my stopwatch, and he tongue-flicks this area for 13 minutes. And after 13 minutes, he coils up in the stereotyped ambush posture that they use to to strike at prey. And he's perpendicular to what I later determined by observation as a chipmunk runway. So he coils up there, forms this ambush coil, and I'm thinking, this is really cool to see this. I, you don't see this very often. We know that's how they hunt, but you don't actually see the choice happen. So I'm already thinking this is a great morning. You know, we're, we're seeing this, and this is how we think it works, and sure enough, that's what he's doing. Fortunately, we keep watching because it turns out there's a dead fern, a dried dead fern, about eight inches in front of his face. It's right in his perspective strike path. And remember, he doesn't know when the chipmunk's coming, or if the chipmunk's ever coming. He just hopes, so to speak, it is. So he, he may be there for hours. He might be there for days. But there's this dried fern frond right in his strike path. After two minutes, he reaches out with what, with a behavior we've only previously seen in males fighting over females. It's a very stereotyped thing in which the snake raises its head up, its neck up in the air straight. There's a little bend in the neck, which, which they use to push over other males. They have this combat behavior when they're fighting for a female. It's literally sort of arm wrestling, except it's with their necks. He reaches out with that exact behavior, very stereotyped form. I've seen it before, but only in male-male combat. He reaches out and pushes the fern out of the way. And then pulls back into his ambush posture. And, of course, I'm just, this is jaw-dropping to me. Because the implication is that this snake has is, is sort of intuited a problem sometime in the future, reached into his behavioral quiver, pulled out something that he's used for a different uh, toppling purpose, a different something's in my way to a goal purpose, and he moves this fern out of the way. And I was so shocked, I turned to Dave and I whispered, what did you just see? Because <laughs> I was afraid nobody would believe me. And he goes, he just bent over that fern, and I'm writing in my notebook and so forth. And a very cool thing was I published that observation in an essay about appreciating rattlesnakes. And after this essay came out in, in the magazine Wild Earth, a field biologist in Canada who was studying prairie rattlesnakes sent me an email about watching a prairie rattlesnake crawl up to a cluster of rodent burrows, mouths, and crawl around, all around, mash down all the grass, all around these burrows, and then set up his ambush posture. So 
something very analogous to what I'd seen the blacktail do. Well, well, in the absence of proof, I, I'd love to hear just your, your feelings about this. Uh, you write that a question that motivates many naturalists is, what is it like to be a blacktail, or for that matter, a house wren, or my dog Riley? Mm-hmm. Having observed this kind of in, seeming intentional, intelligent, deductive kinds of behavior, what do you think it is to be a blacktail yeah. rattlesnake? Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough question. And of course, there's a sense in which it's completely unanswerable. Okay. And there's even a famous essay in philosophy by Thomas Nagel about what's it like to be a bad, I think. And yeah, it's a classic. It's a classic. Yeah. And, and there, there is quite obviously a sense in which we'll never know. And actually, some people think it's a stupid question. So there are, there are very bright biologists and psychologists who think that it's a stupid question because we will never know. A different point of view is that, uh, We'll never know exactly, but we can use what what my advisor in grad school, Gordon Burkhart, called critical anthropomorphism. And and he called it critical because what we don't want to do is treat – or what I don't want to do anyway is treat other animals like little imperfect humans. And I actually – you know, I love my dogs, and I talk to them all the time. I admit to all that. <laughs> but I But I don't want them to become, in my mind even, in, in the mind of someone who loves them, I don't want them to become – little humans in dog costumes. I, I don't want to ever forget that they've got their own dogness and, and other things have their own catness. And so I, I think the danger of anthropomorphism is, is turning things into these things. And if, if you're trying to study them, then the danger is that you start, you start imparting them with human motivations and so forth. And that's been justly criticized a lot in the past. But on the other hand, this idea that that's a stupid question I think is very short-sighted. Or and, that they're machines. Absolutely. And I yeah. think that's, I think that's actually ludicrous. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine how anybody's ever had a dog thinks that that's just a machine. And after having watched live rattlesnakes, individual rattlesnakes for years, I'm convinced that they have very complex inner worlds and that a lot's going on in there. And that as they go through their lives adding experience, those experiencers are shaping the way they respond. Uh, I, I can't imagine it's not that way. Well, that reminds me of a question about the book as a whole. There is this version of science, and I'm not exactly sure how many people really, really, really believe it, mm-hmm. but it's a version that we're taught, which says you're supposed to divorce yourself mm-hmm. from the subject, that ultimately it is a mechanistic thing you're looking at. It's explained by the laws of physics and the laws of biology forget about feelings forget about attachments forget about forget about applying your own experience to mm-hmm. it your book flies in the face of that first of all like i say we've you've mixed natural history and personal history you've gotten mm-hmm. yourself involved here mm-hmm. you speculate on life and death mm-hmm. you talk about the umwelt this surrounding world that we were just describing of animals mm-hmm. were you nervous to do that and are there people in the sciences who think this dude's not being scientific at all. Uh, so the first, I, I didn't feel nervous about doing it. And I think many people would admit, at least privately, that you can never entirely divorce yourself as a person from what you do. And, of course, there are people who've made careers out of pushing that point of view. And, in fact, you know, um, uh, people whose who's field is to study science as opposed to do science, that's sort of one of their major thrusts is that we're all, in fact – you know, the the captive of ourselves as a person doing this work. I do think the so so I didn't feel nervous about doing it in this book and I don't I don't actually think I'm gonna get criticized for that very much. And if I am I'm not worried about that criticism. Um I think what happens though is that um part of science it, a big deal about science is having evidence. And a big deal about science is generalization. In fact I think a really key thing about science is that you and I might have two different explanations for some phenomena. And what we want to do is get to the point where we agree that if this turns out to be the evidence, you're right. (laughs) And if this turns out to be the evidence, I'm right. So ideally, we would agree in advance. We, We disagree. You know, this is why the snake does it. That's why the snake does it. We agree in advance. We're going to go out and do A, B, and C. And if the result is D, then you are right. And if the result is E, then I'm right. And I think that's the part at which we want to divorce our personalities as much as possible from what we're doing as scientists and what we're concluding as scientists. Does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, in the end, uh, you have to have testable hypotheses. Uh, you have to have verifiable claims, or it's not science. That's right. And society is asking us for answers about various things. Will this drug do this? If it's my part of science, it's if we reduce species richness in an ecosystem, will there be a point at which uh, unexpected collapses takes place or so, something like that? Mm-hmm. And I think if we're going to answer those kinds of questions, we have to agree in advance that, that we are removing ourselves as much as we humanly can from the answers we get. Right, right. So the questions about, you know, any kind of similarity in animal consciousness to ours, right. that ain't verifiable. Partly because we can't even verify our own consciousness, I would submit. Yes, that's I mean, right. I, I can't perform any tests that will prove to me that you're conscious. Right. <laughs> it's just that we've got this language, and we, we can grapple with it at least. Yeah. yeah. But the fact that I can't talk to a black-tailed rattlesnake doesn't keep me from making inferences about its internal world based on observations like it yeah. moving that solving a barrier problem. Right. You know? right. So that's, to me, that's the middle ground, and that's, that's a really exciting frontier is to figure out ways – to know more about the internal workings of other species. If uh, a rattlesnake wandered into this radio studio right now, what would you do? I'd say, hey, Robert, there's a rattlesnake over here in the corner. And? Uh, do you know where it came from? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it just wouldn't be a big deal. I mean, we'd decide what to do about the fact that a rattlesnake had showed up in here, but neither of us would be in any immediate danger. Um I mean, we both got shoes on. We both got pants on. It's not going to run around the studio chasing us. Uh, I don't see any places where it could get into a hole and escape right away. So I think we've got plenty of time to figure out how to deal with the fact that we have this rattlesnake in the studio. How about a tarantula? Oh, that's a funny question. You you know I'm arachnophobic. The only way the ra- tarantula would really bother me is if while you and I are sitting here, your pupils suddenly started constricting and looking at my left shoulder, and when I turned my head, there was a big spider on it. That would tend to freak me out a bit uh, because I am somewhat arachnophobic. But if I saw it just crawling across the table, that that wouldn't bother me because I've been around tarantulas so much. I know that it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt us. Yeah, I was gonna say that the rattlesnake could potentially do a whole lot more harm to you than a tarantula. Certainly, and if you had said a black mamba, yeah, if there were adult if there were an adult black mamba in here, I'd be quite worried. What would you do? Uh, I guess I'd be watching where the snake was and wonder, and, and wanting you and I to uh, move slowly, get to the door, and get out of the door. Mm-hmm. So I would want us out of this room and the door shut with the snake still in the room as long as possible, uh, quickly as possible, and then we'd figure out what to do next. Is that the scariest snake? It's certainly one of a handful of the scariest snakes in the world. Yeah. But you don't have... What is the technical term for fear of snakes? Ophidiophobia. Ophidiophobia, and yet you do have a little arachnophobia. Yes, isn't That's that That's pretty weird? interesting. Isn't, isn't that it? weird? Yeah. Yeah, and it turns out I've, I, I've never done a systematic survey, but I often ask people this, and it's not uncommon, even among biologists, for, one to, for someone to be one or the other. So, for example, Ed Wilson, the famous E.O. Wilson at Harvard, yeah. is what he calls, quote, unquote, mildly arachnophobic, and he loves snakes. And he, he loves ants. He loves ants. So he's a little weird in that respect because he likes mm. things with six legs but not eight. <laughs> I had a, a beloved colleague at Cornell for many years, Thomas Eisner, who was also one, Wilson's best friend in grad school. And Eisner worked on spiders a lot. Eisner, would, and we were very dear friends, and he would not go in my lab. I, he would not go in my room, where there, the lab at Cornell, where I had live rattlesnakes. And my hunch is that the norm, the normal way to be is to prefer two to four limbs. And that some of us, like me, really like no legs. And some of us, like Tom Eisner, really like eight legs. And if you're one extreme or the other, like for me, eight is too many. I'm guessing for, centipedes must drive you up a wall. Centipedes are like the, you know, they're like they're like a real conundrum because they're long and skinny like a snake and they've got <laughs> way too many legs. Okay? So, yeah, you're right. I wow. actually find centipedes especially intriguing. I've kept them as pets before and I've even daydreamed about studying them in the field. That is fascinating. Um, You list some colleagues, and by colleagues I mean people in the herpetological, especially the snake profession, Mm -hmm. maybe not people you know, but you list a number of experts who've been killed by venomous snakes over Mm -hmm. the years. Mm -hmm. You yourself have been lucky enough to never have been bitten after becoming a pro. I mean, you Mm -hmm. were bitten by a copperhead once as a teenager. That's right. Nothing came of that. That's right. Your wife, Kelly, though, who's a lizard expert, mm-hmm. 
got a pretty serious rattlesnake bite. That's true. In 2003. That's right. Were you there? No, I was about uh, 50 miles away in another mountain range. You heard about it immediately, though, I imagine. Uh, almost immediately because she uh, – I was in the Chiricahua Mountains, and the, the house we stayed in with the Hardys was in the Chiricahuas. Dave Hardy and I were only three miles away from the house at our Blacktail Rattlesnake Study Site. Kelly and one of her grad students had gone to the Palencio Mountains about 50 miles away. And when she got bit, she called by cell phone to Dave's wife told her, who called us on a walkie-talkie. So David and I had actually had just come back to our car from a morning of hiking, and Billy called us on a walkie-talkie and said, uh, Kelly's been bitten by a rattlesnake. They're on their way to Douglas to a hospital. So we headed to Douglas. When we got to Douglas, Kelly was already stabilized, and a helicopter was coming in to get her and take her to Tucson. But, man, uh, from your description, it was a serious bite. It was a very serious bite. A lot of bite. tissue damage. A lot of, And it was all internal tissue damage. So... Typically, with what I might call a more normal rattlesnake bite, you'd have at most moderate deep tissue damage and lots of superficial damage. So a typical rattlesnake bite, which resolves itself completely without any permanent damage, looks pretty bad for a while because you have all this external damage. Kelly had no external evidence of the bite except extreme swelling. And what had happened to her was she stepped on a blacktail rattlesnake she didn't see. It bit her in the shin or just to the left of the shin, and it was a very deep bite. And so she had a lot of deep muscle destruction, but no superficial damage. She fully recovered. She did fully recover, uh, which is a credit to her fortitude especially. I mean, she was told at one point that she was permanently crippled, and she just simply refused to believe it. And she she started trail running, and then she subsequently ran three marathons. So. She's fine. She doesn't even really think about it much anymore. Mm. Yeah. Brings me back to that question we raised back toward the beginning of the interview, though, about your study of these sometimes lethal mm-hmm. animals and what you might have learned about mortality or death, because you seem to indicate in this book that there might be a connection there. You know? Yeah. Your experience of death and your some of the traumatic experiences you had and this other world where things are killing each other mm-hmm. quite often. Yes. Yes, and I explored it in the book. And and again, I I hope I explored it in a way that simply exposes my own journey as opposed to try to tell other people what to think. I, I don't feel smug about this. Uh, but clearly for me, I mean, I spent my whole adult life studying what I call natural-born killers. And in the background was the fact that I'd watched parts of human existence that that involve mortality and sometimes involve actually extraordinary cruelty of people to people, uh, violence of people on people. And uh, one thing about the rest of nature is that I don't think there's any, there's, there, there's no evil there. I mean, it's so tempting to ascribe something we call evil when you hear about the murder of, of, of someone who doesn't seem to deserve being murdered, you know, or, or you hear about the death or you watch the death of a child. It's, it, it's so tempting to ascribe some, some cosmic force involved. And yet if you, if you look at all the rest of nature, I mean, when, when a rattlesnake strikes a rabbit, there's no hatred of the rabbit by the rattlesnake. There's no, we wouldn't put evil in it. People actually used to, but we wouldn't put evil uh, in that, in that interaction. And so for me, being out in nature involved a sort of continuous reaffirmation that life is not immortal. It's not for me anyway. And that, and that death is always a possibility. And in fact, it's always going to be the end point. And, uh, for me, that's actually a comforting thing. I've come to find that comforting and and humbling. So for me, I feel actually more at ease when I go out in nature and realize that I'm just a pebble on the stream bank in the grand scheme of things. That makes me feel calm about the fact that I'm not going to live forever. And I think studying dangerous creatures uh, sort of played into that perspective. Hmm. Whereas my impression is that we as sort of 21st century humans are in this, have been for quite some time now, in this sort of headlong dash to convince ourselves we'll be immortal. You know, we shy away even in our food habits, you know, we, we, we no longer, you can't go into a grocery store now and realize that an animal dies for you to eat meat. Whereas just as recently as when I was a child, you would go in a grocery store and you would see half a side of beef or you would see a ham as a whole 
back part of a pig. You would see a whole chicken. And, and for better or worse, you'd have to face up to the messiness of the fact that by being an omnivore, something else dies for your existence, as is true of everything else in nature, you know. And Whereas we, now you might, a, yeah. you, you might see a bacon package with a smiling pig. <laughs> yes, exactly. In fact, to me, the funniest example of that is that it's now very popular to have pet snakes. Yeah. And the most popular snakes, the ones I would certainly uh, recommend as pets, are snakes that normally eat rodents. And you can go to the big chain pet stores now and buy in a Ziploc bag inside a cardboard box a a pre-killed frozen mouse. And I won't mention the brand on, on, on air, but there's one in particular where the mouse is in a blue box and, and, it, and the mouse is actually this grinning little mouse looking over his shoulder at you from the package. So <laughs> it's like we've gone to extraordinary lengths to not have to admit that even though the snake's not going to kill the mouse and we're not going to kill the mouse ourselves for the snake, a mouse actually died for your snake to have a meal. You're reminding me that you write about the fact that you uh, have become a born-again predator. Yeah. You talk about taking up hunting in the last, what, 10 years? Last five. Last five years. Yes. Sometimes on a ranch owned by a friend of yours in Texas, right? That's right. Hunting for wild pigs and deer. Now, you seem a little ambivalent. Um, at one point, you write, uh, after having, uh, I guess, shot a deer or some deer, you write, I think about those marvelous sensibilities destroyed by my violent, selfish acts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was trying to be candid. I, 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 what happened to me was, I've, here I've studied natural-born killers my whole life, and I'm an omnivore, and I don't intend to stop being an omnivore. I was raised that way. That's part of why I'm an omnivore. I was raised that way. And I've always sort of wondered, what would it be like to take real responsibility for the fact that other animals die for me to eat meat. I uh, I learned gun safety and marksmanship as a little kid with my grandpa. I learned it again as a Boy Scout. I learned it again as a soldier. So I've always been comfortable with guns. I don't have the sort of urban view of guns as 9mm semi-autos that kill kids in drive-bys. I, I grew up with a notion of guns as, as uh, tools that you learn to use in a safe way for a very particular purpose. So I don't have the anti-gun thing in, in that sense. And uh, so I'd always wondered what it would be like to become a predator myself. And one thing led to another, I just didn't do it. And the years would go by, my wife started teasing me about it. And then I have this friend, David Hillis, and he, uh, as a, somewhat as a hobby, ranches longhorns in the hill country of Texas, which is my favorite place on earth. And, and David is a hunter, and he knew that I wanted to learn to hunt. And and uh, my last excuse was that I'd never actually had a hunter safety course. And I just kept putting off going to the trouble of doing a weekend for it. And, w and in the fall of 2009, David called me and he said, you've run out of excuses. I just found out that in Texas, if you were born before 1977, you're gun safe, which I think is absurd. But there you have it, you know. So I, I went down and he said, not only that, I've arranged it. I know you've always wanted to be a cowboy. We're going to round up my herd of longhorns that week, and uh, you can be a cowboy too. So I went down there not knowing how I'd react. I, I thought I might be disgusted, actually, if I shot a mammal, a big mammal. And I even considered, after I got down there, I was on the way down, maybe I just won't do it. Maybe I'll just watch the other people do it. But I, I didn't like the idea of being a spectator. I wanted to be a participant, which seemed like an important distinction to me. And so I did it. And um, it turned out that I think it's one of the re most respectful things I've ever done as a naturalist. I feel very good about the fact that I've never I've never left a wounded animal out there. I've always made good shots. I feel very good about the fact that our entire annual meat budget comes from me shooting two or three whitetails a year. And uh I've really found it personally inspiring and thought provoking to to be part of this messy business of, of being an omnivore. Mm. I'm glad I've done it. How does it make you feel about the other various ways we kill animals? Well, in fact, the first year when I got home, my wife said, you've got to watch this film, Food, Inc., Food Incorporated. She goes, you're never going to eat another factory farm chicken in your life. And that, in fact, is true. I mean, I watched that film, and I can't justify it. I, I, I mean, I can understand how someone who can't afford to eat healthier meat is going to buy a factory farm chicken, and I'm not begrudging them that. I can afford to not ever eat factory farm meat again, and I'm not going to. So once in a while, we buy a, a local happy chicken at the farmer's market. 
you know, things like that. And mostly we, our meat budget comes off deer and pigs that I shoot or that Kelly shoots actually now. Hmm. You know, in my book, I actually uh, say that there's three gifts to, I wish I could get every, give every young naturalist. And one of them is that you would go out and, and kill, slaughter, and eat a large mammal. And I even have a veggie alternative that you can read about in the book. <laughs> the other two gifts, one of them is I would take you to Africa and I would put you on foot among the megafauna. So I don't mean that you'd be in a safari van. I mean, and there are ways to do this that aren't expensive. I would get you out there on foot walking among buffalo and rhinos and elephants because I wish every young naturalist, everyone who loves nature, could experience firsthand the magic of really being out there with the megafauna. I, th- I think the megafauna are the next things we're going to lose. I think they are the most imperiled, precious thing on earth in terms of biodiversity, and I wish everybody could see that. My third gift is I would have everybody go backpacking. So I, I've I've done a lot of backpacking in South America and North America, and I think it's a truly profound thing to 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 recognize that you're out there with everything you're going to need for the next few days on your back. That any contingency you run into, you're going to have to face with what you're carrying. And I found it so thought provoking to realize that I could actually carry all the food I would need that I could be responsible for carrying out all of my waste. And that is the situation in some places where you backpack to do that with it on your back is to really, I kind of think face up to the bare, the bare essentials of, of having a sustainable relationship with your surroundings. You talk about a number of your fellow snake experts who've been killed by uh, venomous bites. And and one of them was uh, a man named Robert Mertens of the um, Senkenberg museum. That's right. Who, after he was bitten uh, by a savanna twig snake, said, what a fitting death for a herpetologist. That's right. And uh, that reminded me of um, something that uh, William Hamilton, the great evolutionary biologist, wrote. uh, Looking ahead to his own death, he said, I will leave a sum in my last will for my body to be carried to Brazil and to these forests. It will be laid out in a manner secure against the possums and the vultures, just as we make our chickens secure. And this great coprophanius beetle, that's a dung beetle, I think, will bury me. They will enter, will bury, will live on my flesh, and in the shape of their children and mine, I will escape death. Ah, that's great. Fantastic. So we've got uh, Robert Merton's um, dying by snake bite, and we have... (laughs) We have W.D. Hamilton at least imagining that he'd like to be eaten by the dung beetles that he studied. Right. Which I guess didn't happen because he's buried near Oxford in England. I think that's true. Yeah. Have you thought about your own end, though? Uh, you mean my death or what will happen to me afterwards? Afterwards. Do you have afterwards. any such wishes? My fantasy would be to have a platform burial uh, like Native Americans used to do. So for me, the best possible thing would be sort of like Hamilton envisioned, except I don't care if the possums take my bones. I would just <laughs> like to be back out in nature disassembled by the scavengers and strewn to the four winds. Uh, that That's what I would choose. Uh, it's not possible to do that. Somebody actually once played a hoax on me and, and gave me a website where you could sign up for that. And it turned out to not be true. There's laws, right? Yeah, there's laws. The next best thing right now is what are called green burials, where there's no preservative and no casket. You just are in a, in a compostable box or a shroud, and you go in the ground. And the, the place where these green burials happen are sort of de facto wildlife preserves because it's a chunk of land that's saved in perpetuity and there are no concrete structures or anything going up. You think you can do that? I, I would, I, that'd be fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, in my book, I talk about the death of, one of my best friend since high school who, uh, when he was dying, and we, we both knew he was dying and he was comfortable about it, he, he, he got uncharacteristically serious at one moment and he said, I need to ask you a really big favor. And I'm like, anything, man. And he goes, well, I want you to be the executor of my remains. I said, no problem. And he goes, well, the problem is I can't decide. I'm going to be cremated. And he said, the problem is I can't decide where to have you throw my ashes. I've thought of two places. And I said, well, why don't we divide you in half? And he goes, would you do that? And I said, oh, you know, hell yeah, I'll do four places. And he said, really? Because I've actually thought of four. And so it turned out he, he we worked out this agreement on on the four places and and interestingly, in terms of your question, one of them was in the Chiricahua Mountains. And when I took his ashes there, I stood on a, on a place called Silver Peak, and I, I was standing there, and, and there was no wind. And so when I dumped the ashes that time, the, 
they just sort of fell on me and they fell at my feet, except I was standing on this little precipice, so the ashes fell about 10 or 12 feet below me. And when I looked down, there were two uh, yarrow spiny lizards. It's a particular species of fence lizard relative, and they were sitting there covered in ashes, and they were kind of shaking, and you could almost see these lizards looking at themselves like, like, what is this ash, you know? (laughs) And and then in the next moment, I remembered that uh, two of Ben's favorite snakes were the mountain king snake and the banded rock rattlesnake, both of which prefer to eat yarrow spiny lizard. And so with any luck at all, Ben's ashes were going to become spiny lizard tissue and mountain king snake tissue and rock rattlesnake tissue, just like W.J. Hamilton was talking about. Yeah, so it goes. That's right. You have a favorite quote from uh, Larry McMurtry's novel, uh, Lonesome Dove. Oh, yeah. The earth is mostly just a boneyard, but pretty in sunlight. That says it all for me. I'm going to quote from you to end this interview. Like all living things, we're here for a while, and then we aren't. And I'm I'm cool with that. <laughs> well, thanks for being here for a while. Great pleasure for me. Thanks for having me, Robert. Harry Green is professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University. His latest book is Tracks and Shadows, Field Biology as Art. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. And I will be back for another go-round next week. <laughs>